We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. To be honest, he's taught me so much. Uh, you know, he's even taught me how to, you know, really get out of the pick and rolls and go for lobs and, you know, just being that defensive anchor, talking when I'm fatigued in late games like this. And, you know, he's always on me, and I don't take it for, I don't take it as nothing. I don't take it personal. You know, I'm just so honored that he takes the time out to tell me constructive criticism, and I take the best out of it and make it a positive, man. And I'm just blessed, you know. Dude, high, high IQ, and he brings a lot to this team. And the leadership he brings and how he approached the game is just contagious. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. My name is Mike. I'm here with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's, you know, 24 hours after the second overtime loss of the weekend. It was a brutal brutal weekend uh, overall though Mike yeah yeah I, I, it was tough <laughs> it was tough I'm weirdly encouraged after it because of how well DeAndre Ayton played and how important that is to the future of this team uh, but I, I will not deny that watching two tough overtime losses back to back had a bit of an effect on my overall mood <laughs> which I, I'm still working on like I think there's 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 a point where when you were a Suns fan in the last five, six years, there was a point where losses completely stopped affecting my mood entirely, where it's like, well, I just expect them to lose this game, so I'm just going to watch it for different reasons. And if they win, fun. If they don't win, whatever. There is a different way of watching games so far for me this season. Is that the case with you too? Well, yes, but uh, but I'm going to be honest. The way, because I was mad after the first loss. I was really mad because I thought I thought they had it. I, I really thought they had it. And they had... If Devin Booker stayed in, maybe they would have, to be honest. The, 
freaking timeouts and that enraged me. Um, anyway, I'm not gonna. <laughs> we're not gonna get bogged down into that today because it's been 48 hours uh, after the fact. My point is. Then when Devin Booker was hurt, I went into the next game and I was like, look, the only way I can say for sure that I won't get mad tonight is if I go in with the expectation of us losing. This Denver team is really good. And so that's what I did. And I expected them to lose. And you know what? It still hurt, but it didn't it didn't hurt quite as bad. And at least what I get to take out of it. I mean, look, Jamal Murray traveled. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the Suns won that game technically. The officials confirms <laughs> that he traveled. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it, it, it still hurt. It still sucked. At least DeAndre Ayton played really well. At least we got a good game out of Chris Paul, including some good clutch performance. Um, And especially, I mean, Frank Kaminsky uh, just kind of demonstrated just how far DeAndre Ayton has come, I think, solely with his performance in the second overtime. (laughs) Uh, So, so yeah, I mean, there were were good things to take out of it, but it does hurt. And, and man, Denver is not a team that I want to match up with against in the yeah, first round. I saw a lot of non-Suns fans asking for Denver-Phoenix playoff games. And look, any playoff game would make me excited, but that would be brutal. Jokic flops a lot, and it's very frustrating. I know. And and I know like Utah is like 13-4 and four right now or whatever, but I still maintain, give me Utah any day in a seven-game series. The Suns match up Phoenix. well. Yeah, over Denver. Yeah. Like Denver, I think, is now sol- solidly in that tier with both LA teams where it's like, please not them. <laughs> so if that right. means, you know, that means essentially you got to get the fourth or the fifth seed. If we're assuming that Denver is eventually going to kind of work their way into the third seed, we don't know for sure. But I do think they're the third best team in the Western Conference. And uh, and yeah, they're they're scary They're That's three yeah. really close games we've had with them. But it is at least encouraging uh, that they were able to keep it close last night without Devin Booker. Um, that's that's something to take yeah. away from it as well, too. If the Suns end up in the playoffs against the Nuggets, uh, just no Scott Foster, please. Just no Scott Foster. I'm just going to beg for that. 15 games have now passed. Suns are one game above 500. Uh, Arguably had a really rough stretch recently, and I guess it's not arguable. They had a rough stretch recently, but I think there are things to be excited about about that. We decided this was a good time to do a check-in with our friend Dan Favalli, who hosts the Hardwood, Hardwood Knox podcast and writes for Bleacher Report. Uh, he's going to come on in just a bit. We're going to have a long conversation about what the Suns have been so far, and then we're going to revisit some of the Bleacher Report rankings that he wrote about before the season and talk about how the five Suns players that were on that list have played so far this season and whether or not we're stock up or stock down on where their rankings are. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. Dan is a really smart guy and a great writer, and I think we had a really good conversation with him. Uh, but it's long, so we're not going to waste your time. Well, here. We'll switch over to wait, that. Wait, wait. I just want to yes. say one thing. I want to I want to boost Dan's rep a little bit as much as I can before we switch over into that. Um, he invited us onto his podcast, the Hardwood Knox podcast, both yes. of us in the preseason, and just as a demonstration of how much of a believer this guy is in the Suns. Um, he I think was higher on them in terms of his win loss projection for this season than both of us. So this, right. you know, Dan's a guy who he's, he's watched a lot of Suns games the past few years and, and he really believes in what this team is doing currently. Yes. And, and to that point, I think you'll enjoy the conversation because he's someone who's very informed about this team. So we'll switch over to, to that now and hopefully, hopefully you guys enjoy it and we'll be back uh, next week. All right. Very excited about the guests joining us. A NBA writer, for Bleacher Report, co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast, 
deputy editor for NBA Math and a another Blue Wire bro, as we've started to call them, Dan Favali. Dan, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. How are you guys doing? Good. Uh, I, I mean, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we came on and uh, before the season onto the Hardwood Knox podcast, talked a lot about the Suns. It seems like something that you were following pretty closely, which we appreciate. You know, as somebody like you who covers the entire NBA, it's nice to have somebody uh, kind of feel as good about the Suns as Sam and I were feeling. You know, it's an interesting time, I think, to come on and talk about the Suns now that they're eight and seven. Uh, A weird stretch, really. They lost five of the last seven games. Um, Some tough losses in there as well. Uh, Three overtimes in the last two games alone. Uh, but I still think it's a really interesting team to talk about. And, you know, after about 15 games, it's a nice time to sort of check in with you and see how you're feeling. Just just from a general perspective, I know you've caught a few Suns games, uh, more than I think a lot of people at this point of the season. How do you feel about the Suns season, how they've looked so far? It's they're it's they're so clear and one thank you for the for the for the kind words. I think it was not to tattletale on you guys, but you guys were talking me like down on the song yeah. when you came on the podcast. <laughs> so I was like, I could see them winning at a fifty eight win pace, and you're like, you're you're out of your mind. Yeah. <laughs> um. But they're they're so clearly unfinished. But I'm almost encouraged because you know the, you're talking about this past stretch. Like there's just been so much noise in there when you're looking at you know Devin Booker already missed a full game. Um. Sarge has been banged up, but there it's just still so new. For everything there's like definitely concerns there but i think i remain just as high on them as i was before maybe not in raw win totals for this year but they feel like the quintessential team that assuming nothing happens with covid or, or injuries at this point that they should be peaking at the right time like later in the year as the playoffs start um when they when there's you know there's just better chemistry where deandre ayton hopefully is more consistent or chris paul and devin booker are playing better off one another or you know devin booker is like has a handle again or something so (laughs) it it feels like i don't know why i'm still so optimistic but i feel like i might even be more optimistic about the the late season postseason suns than i was at the start of this year well i think i I think that makes a lot of sense because it's encouraging just how much the supporting cast has stepped up because anyone who's watched the Suns so far has seen Chris Paul not playing super great, Devin Booker the same, but but you see guys like Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson and so on step up. Um, but but anyway, to, to summarize for you, Dan, no more fifty eight win pace. You're not you're not feeling that anymore. <laughs> you know, I won't rule it out, but yeah, that was I was clearly a miss. Fifty seven or fifty eight, whatever it was, it does look like that's going to end up being um, way off. The I'm hoping that you guys, I'm not even to turn the question on you, just to explain why their first iteration of the starting lineup just didn't work for me. It, it made so much sense on paper, and I know they um, mm. made the change with you know Cam Johnson in there, at least for now, when they're going to be at full strength. And I know teams were shooting, I think, when I looked it up, like 44% on threes whenever Bridges, CP3, and Booker and Aiton are on the floor. I just I haven't been able to figure out like what, what is happening there. That lineup just seems to make so much sense to me, and yet it just wasn't working. I have some theories. I'll go first, Sam, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, my the first theory is DeAndre Ayton wasn't like the last four games for DeAndre Ayton have now solidified in my mind that the first eleven games before that he was just playing badly on offense, and uh, and I think it's 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 sort of gotten to a point where I'm wondering like after those first ten or eleven games I'm like I I hope this is not who DeAndre Ayton is because this is going badly he's not attacking he's not looking at the rim he's scared. He's shooting some long-range shots from mid-range that are just not good shots, those kinds of things. I think the 
DeAndre in stepping up and playing well in the last four games have made it clear that when he is more engaged in rim running and attacking the rim, the pick and roll game with Chris Paul starts to make a lot more sense. All of a sudden, the assists are coming a lot easier. 14 assists in the first half of the first game against Denver, 12 assists in the first half. Not as good in the second half of both of those games, funny enough. I think one in the first game, maybe two in the second game. Uh, But to see them have now a consistent rim runner, somebody who's not afraid to attack the rim and fight for those offensive rebounds, the entire thing started to make more sense. I don't think that Jay Crowder was the problem at all. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point Jay Crowder re-entered the starting lineup now that DeAndre is playing better. But I will give another shout out too because I think Devin Booker was struggling uh, at the beginning of the season as well. I think it's fair to give Chris Paul a little more time uh, because it's a new team for him, a bunch of new teammates, and he's just a guy who likes to feel things out, I think. But Devin Booker, I expected him to be better at the beginning of the season. So I don't think it had anything to do with what they did. I do think Cameron Johnson helps them to speed up the pace a little bit, but it's more of a concerted effort by Chris Paul to speed up the pace that will matter over time. Mm-hmm. That's my theory, and I'm glad you brought it up because I don't think we've had a good chance to talk in depth about it. But Sam, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I still haven't seen anything from Cam that necessarily makes me believe that that coaching decision should stay long term. Uh, look, I, I've explained this before, and I just think still. It may be a little bit stubborn, but the offense with Paul and Booker was always going to be predicated on a lot of isolation possessions and shots uh, when, when you can't get into that pick-and-roll game with DeAndre Ayton. Uh, and Chris Paul and Devin Booker just haven't been hitting those shots. And at a certain point, they will start hitting those shots. Actually, Chris Paul has been hitting those shots in the past two games specifically. And so I think if you go back to the original lineup with DeAndre Ayton playing the way he currently is and Chris Paul hitting the shots he's supposed to make and you're playing teams that aren't the Nuggets with questionable coaching decisions and refereeing here and there, you win most of those games. Um, you know, I think for the most part, the Suns played really well the past two games. They were just up against a really tough opponent and a couple of things didn't go their way. So, you know, again, it might be stubborn, but I don't actually think anything was necessarily wrong with that lineup and I wouldn't be surprised if they go back to it. Uh... I mean, that, that all makes sense. The uh, the Crowder thing, I feel like I kind of, I was an advocate of him being in the starting five. I might like him a little bit um, off the bench more. I can't believe I'm saying this about Jay Crowder, but one of the things is like, I feel like he's not empowered enough on offense all the time where it's, uh, I think a lot of what the Suns can do, and I know they've been playing a little bit faster over the past few games, but mm-hmm. like, if you have the ball after a turnover or after a live rebound, just like go up the floor and maybe push the pace a bit. And he doesn't seem like he's doing that. And then when he's playing off the ball, in the half court and again you've watched so much more than i have he just sometimes drifts into these weird awkward spaces and i'm like well maybe in the second unit you can give um jay crowder the ball just a bit more where he like yeah there are those like heat checks independent of actually being on a heater but (laughs) it's almost better than a lot of the stuff that i feel like we've seen now and i'm just really interested because of how you know the sample sizes are still small but those sarge at the five lineups are still just (laughs) destructive towards opponents and I I kind of like the Sarich Crowder dynamic as well yeah Uh, that's interesting because we haven't really gotten a good chance to see that Sarich is actually out with the health and safety protocols I'm not sure if that's some sort of contact tracing thing or if at this point maybe he is actually somebody who's tested positive and could be out for more of an extended period of time but I do think that's actually interesting to think about I haven't put a lot of thought into that Sarich and Crowder next to each other on the bench uh, could be really good, especially because Saric, for as good as he is, I think that he 
one of the biggest advantages of him being on the bench and playing the center position is offensively. He's he's just really great uh, offensively. And the entire bench lineup, you know, Javon Carter's on the bench. In in if you have Jay Crowder there, if you have some sort of lineup that has Javon Carter, Jay Crowder, and Sarich at the five, that's pretty interesting as far as defensively. And then Sarich could keep it going offensively uh, at the five. I I like Johnson in the starting lineup, but I also like when we were watching the Nuggets game, that first Nuggets game watching the way the Suns were struggling to keep up with Jokic on switches just made me think, well, this is why you have a, a guy like Jay Crowder. Yeah. Jay Crowder can specifically be the strong guy that switches on to uh, Jokic in the post and not just get abused. Obviously, Jokic is still going to put some work in there regardless of who's guarding him. But Crowder's big enough and strong enough to to take a lot of that beating, whereas a guy like uh, Cameron Johnson is not. Even Mikhail Bridges is not strong enough. to As long as he is, he's not built to guard somebody like Jokic. It's really only Aiton and Crowder in the second game of the back-to-back because Booker was out. Monty went with Crowder, which at first, well, I was like, the bench is going to get killed, and it did. Uh, the, bench did <laughs> the bench did get killed. Uh, but the starting lineup played so, so much better because they had another guy that can fight there. So it's an interesting thing where I'm not sure that Monty's the type of coach to actually change the starting lineup based on uh, actual matchups. I kind of I would like it if he did. I just don't really... It's not something that I've ever seen him do. Uh, but, you know, when LeBron's in the game or Anthony Davis, if you're playing the Lakers, I can't imagine Cameron Johnson continuing to do well. Maybe there's a little bit of make them adjust to you instead of you adjusting to them. But, I mean, why have Crowder if you're not going to use him to defend those stars, I guess, is how I look at it. What do you think? I did not consider that at all. So that is a great point. Yeah. <laughs> Cam Johnson going up against Anthony Davis might be a little bit of an issue. Yeah, <laughs> and you know what? To playoffs, it, it could change. But, Sam, what do you think? What, what do you think about that? Well, about Cam matching up with Anthony Davis specifically or about or do you think <laughs> do you think that there's something that they should do as far as matching up uh, in the starting lineup or do you think it's better to have like a set starting lineup and just go with that man that's a personal philosophy question uh, and I I think generally I'm not that much of a matchup guy I get it depends on your personnel right don't we think cam is kind of a flow the offense rhythm type player who might benefit from having a set role at least you know it I, I feel like Cam Johnson generally would benefit from playing with the same guys who who he knows are going to get him looks in specific spots. And so if you're going to start him, I'd rather you just start him most of the time. And I don't know. I think you can still stagger the minutes in interesting ways. But but I don't know. And, and you know, to your point, Mike, I really have no idea what uh, Monty's philosophy has been throughout his coaching career uh, with regard to that, too. I've never, like, gone back and studied, you know, how much did he change his starting lineup combinations when he was with New Orleans? I just, I just haven't done the research on that, but it's an interesting question. I, I think it's especially tough because Cam Johnson was actually playing really well with the bench. And until Saric is back and we can actually, there's so much predicated on what Saric can do with the bench lineups. And until he's back, it's really difficult to decide what the best decision with everything is going forward. And that's, I think, Dan, to bring it back to what you were talking about, I actually think that's one of the reasons why you can still be optimistic about this team because although they've lost a, a few of the last ones, Devin Booker, Chris Paul can play better, and I think they will, and there's reasons to believe that they will going forward. But also, there's not really been a lot of time where they've all been healthy at the same time and everyone's right. sort of been on the court. At first, it was just Jalen Smith, which is like, 
uh, we don't have to cover Jalen Smith, Dan. I know you're not a believer in that pick, and I, there's there's reasons to believe that that's the right Sam choice. Sam did tag me in. A, I think it was a preseason video of him putting the ball on the floor and spinning in for a for a hoop. I think it was right after we recorded a podcast, and I just yeah, I obliterated the pick. I wanted Devin shown, Vassell or Tyler Halliburton <laughs> on this. Well, team. I mean, you and everyone else, man, and and me too. But he's shown some off the dribble ability. He hit a three yesterday. Um, a look, pretty I'm gonna, three too. I'm cutting the kid a lot of slack. Like he he's been out for a while, so he, he, even, he tested positive. I'll give him yeah. that too. He, <laughs> he was he was COVID positive. He's been out for a month, so he's going to be back in the lineup now. But I'm not, you know, I'm watching him with a watchful eye, but I'm not necessarily taking away any significant uh, sort of analysis from from what he does in the next five or ten games because it might be ugly, honestly. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, it, it will I'll be. I'll tag you in those videos then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think he's showed a lot of interesting things. It's just the role on this team is still what is yet to be defined, and that's a big thing. Something we wanted to cover with you, Dan, because it's been 15 games. It's a good time to sort of check in on just how we feel, Sam and I, obviously, and how you feel as somebody who's covering the league as a whole. I think it's difficult to understand the context of how well players are playing without sort of watching the rest of the league you did a sort of ranking of NBA players, as Bleacher Report, ESPN, everyone does uh, before the season. There was five Suns players on the top 100 list, and what we wanted to do is is go through each one of those five players and use it as an opportunity to discuss how they've looked after 15 games and sort of do a stock up, stock down on their rankings and where they were. Now, before we get into this, I want to say um, these rankings are hard. And Dan, <laughs> Dan, you do a good job on them. How and, hey, how how used to animosity are you at this point, Dan, in your position with Bleacher Report? Because I know the people who are listening to this who aren't familiar with your work specifically heard Dan Favalli writer Bleacher Report and felt some type of way about it. So I want to give you the open floor for just a second to defend yourself first. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think there's when it's ESPN, when it's Bleacher Report, when it's just the you know the, the sites that are covering it nationally. There's I think there will be natural animosity there, and there are going to be fans that I recognize are just going to know the Suns better than I am. The one thing I'll say is I know everything is promoted um, with ultra incandescence. Try and read it. Like I try and put the topic. Like rankings is a cookie cutter topic. Like no one is. I'm not. I don't think I'm winning a Pulitzer for um, <laughs> doing rankings, but I do try and make them unique in my voice and at least the thought and the the analysis that's going into them and i understand the game and that people are going to get mad i know why they exist but if you're mad like maybe just take a look at the text first and then get mad after that and you can (laughs) tell me why i was wrong yeah i don't envy anyone that has to do these kinds of rankings actually before we get into it something that i do ask a lot of people who cover the entire nba what's your impression of suns fans and the way they sort of react or act uh, regarding coverage and things that you say or, or or write about or even the what you've seen of them online for other people. And feel free to be honest. We've asked other people this before, and they've been very honest. Uh, uh, so I would like to hear what you think about Suns fans, just from a general perspective. They're like, if they either agree or disagree with something, they're, they're, they're going to be united in it, where it just feels like where they've been mad at me in the past, I think, um, this is going back a couple years where I had Jason Tatum like appreciably higher than Devin Booker, and it felt like, like, like that Suns fandom was just a monolith of people who wanted me to die. <laughs> but then if you 
uh, when I've said like nicer things where I think I got to the point where it was maybe a little bit before last season or at the start of last season, I seemed to be higher on Devin Booker than the, the national media consensus. They were like super nice, like in bunches and so in droves. And so they definitely understand the game for sure. Um, they are, I, I would say they're probably, I think closer to the even keeled fan bases that I've interacted with where it's like some can skew, like they're not willing to hear any criticism or maybe i'm just not you know hearing the people who are yelling at me when i do criticize the suns <laughs> um but the past two years of suns interactions i think have been very positive yeah and i, I that doesn't surprise me because i think you are one of the people that has been uh right about the suns is how i'll put it <laughs> more often than others because i think there is i think for a lot of suns fans there they can tell when people aren't watching the team just from how people talk about it not necessarily their specific opinions but the words that they use or what they say like like Shaq for example on TNT Shaq clearly doesn't watch most of the NBA and I know there's a lot of drama about him but we were laughing on our last episode because he said DeAndre and should be averaging 20 and 9 9 being 9 <laughs> rebounds and it's like if you watch DeAndre and he should be averaging more than 9 rebounds he's more than capable of averaging more than 9 rebounds and he should be averaging more than 9 rebounds a small thing but it's something that just, I think, points to the fact that he's just not watched DeAndre Ayton. And I think a lot of Suns fans will latch onto that specific language and pounce on someone if if they think that they are just not watching the team. Specific, I always say, uh, though, yeah. it's okay that people weren't watching the team for the last, like, five years. <laughs> it's okay. Well, and, and I agree with that. I've, I've said to this day that they need to actually prove it before, like, we should expect that everyone watches them. So, you know, I think it's good that they're mostly doing that this season so far. Um, but also, to your point, Mike, there are just certain phrases that are that are trigger words. Like, empty calorie is one that, you know, will instantly yeah. kind of trigger a lot of Suns fans. Um, yeah, there's well, that still... can't be related to Devin Booker at all. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we still make looter and a riot jokes. Um, yes, that one too. Constantly. I do. If I remember correctly, I think one of the first interactions like with Sam after we had followed each other was uh, he went at me for my Tatum over Booker ranking. I don't no. know what this was. Uh, and you, relative to what other people were saying, you were very nice, but it was... Um, I, I told you before I started that when I see people where their mutual follows and they say stuff about it i'll just slide into the mentions and be like hey what's up <laughs> let them know that i wrote it and that was one of the first interactions we had it ended up being pretty positive but um that's a testament that i actually will slide in people's replies Man. if i follow them and they're they're not happy with what i did <laughs> well that's sort of it's a thankless job doing the rankings i think no matter what i think a lot of the uh, this sort of engagements driven around rankings are just people being angry and uh yeah maybe that's going to happen when people listen to this we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode two, but <laughs> you had, I think your rankings were really high on the Suns for the record because there were five players that you had in the top 100. Jay Crowder at 97. Mikhail Bridges at 85. DeAndre yeah, that was like 83 spots too low. I recognize that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're going to talk about that. Uh, and I know you love him, so uh, it's going to be a fun conversation there, I'm sure. DeAndre Ayton at 37. Chris Paul at 22. And Devin Booker at 15. Uh, I think that it's unfair to like say, would you have them higher or lower? But we can just talk about how they've performed relative to expectations up till now. And I think that's probably the best way to tackle this. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Let's let's just go in order from like the the lowest on the list to the highest. So we'll start with Jay Crowder. Yeah, Jay Crowder at ninety seven. I think the conversation about Jay Crowder has been kind of interesting this year. We just talked about him in the starting lineup and how you know I think he's been really good for the Suns so far. He's such a smart off ball defender. He's so strong on the ball. Offensively, it's it's been a roller coaster, but I, I expect that to be what it is. Um, he can't dribble at all. I was I was thinking recently, like if Jay Crowder could dribble, like really dribble, he may have been an all star at some point because he just can't at all. It's really limiting what he's capable of doing offensively. But I think this is the other side of the the coin with Jay Crowder and it's Miami's struggles so far this season. And I think a lot of media has been pointing at the loss of Jay Crowder uh, as being one of the reasons that Miami has struggled. Some people have said that Miami didn't expect this loss to be as big as it was uh, with how they've struggled. Um, I've been a big fan of Jay Crowder so far. Dan, uh, what do you think about Jay Crowder on the Sun so far? Uh, I'd probably skew long-term. I've actually probably been a little bit disappointed in him on offense in Phoenix, like a stock down there. But long-term, I'd probably be stock neutral because I haven't seen anything that I don't think will be different uh, if you don't think he could dribble um miami has mo harkless right now well when he's actually <laughs> available to play uh, and they didn't even really play him that much so jay crowder i think is more dynamic than a player like that and i think you're totally right on defense and i know that he's been uh, you use the word roller coaster i think that's perfect his entire career when it comes to hitting three pointers uh you know he's 34.5 percent on open and wide open threes this year I just those are looks that he has to hit at a higher clip, and I thought he was going to because this roster makes so much sense with the the threats around him. I mean, even if you expected, I just look at it as okay, you have Chris Paul, you have Devin Booker, you're spending a ton of time with them, and then there should be Aiton who has like that um, suction as if he's rolling to the basket, which as you already mentioned, he would have needed to do more at least until he's passed like five or six games. So I understand that there's like the feeling out process, but I really thought that offensively he was going to be a lot more dynamic than I've seen, and from the full. Suns games I've watched just some of the places he winds up when he doesn't have the ball where he's just like inside the arc like on the catch Mm -hmm. and like he like (laughs) I I don't know it's just something has felt off there and I can't really explain it and that's why I was wondering before if being in the second unit might rejuvenate him some even if he ends up spending a great deal of time of uh, his time on the court with the starters Sam what do you think 
Yeah, I, I think he's just the type of player, Dan, unfortunately, where he's going to drift to those awkward spots. And I, I don't really know if he has the skill set within him to, you know, play more of an on-ball role or, or do things to correct that. He's just, you know, he, he's going to be primarily a spot-up shooter. However, our buddy uh, uh, David Nash, who's a big Suns fan, uh, is, you know, I want to credit him here because he's the one who said first in the offseason uh, about Jay Crowder that Jay Crowder is either like a really good bad shooter or a really bad good shooter and he's he's just not he's not a good shooter he's just not so he's you know he's going to get a seven or eight three point attempts per game but that what, what did you say was 34 35% wide open is mm-hmm. is that is that what the number was? Yeah, he's it's, they're, they're basically identical whether you're looking at open or wide yeah. open. He's like in the 34s. Yeah, that's like that's what I was expecting from him coming in, and I just like I wasn't expecting us to get better than that. Unfortunately, like I, I just you know he's I, I I was willing to write it off that he's going to sit there in the corner at least when he's in the right spot, and he's going to have gravity just by virtue of being there. Um, but his actual shooting talent is going to rate uh, you know it's going to rate out as maybe average to below average for a guy who takes as many threes as he does. Now I do want to give is him- six of fifteen um, on threes after taking one or more dribbles. So that's the that's that interesting. Sense. It's like that's interesting on those, but thirty four point five percent on wide open catch and shoots. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, I don't that think he should be taking out. more of those, though. It has to. Even <laughs> no, out. that's no, not what no that way. was. Not my point. <laughs> I do want to give him credit on defense, as long as we're having the conversation. Just because um, one one of the ways in which I think uh, I was humbled a little bit earlier this season, I was having a discussion with uh, Kellen Olson. This was a few weeks ago. He's he's a beat reporter. In case you don't know, Dan who covers the Suns, and um, I think I got carried away in a specific game where it was one of those games. Cam Johnson had maybe two steals on a block. And I got carried away, and I was like, "Is Cam Johnson? You know, is it, it? Could it be true that Cam Johnson is as good of a defender as Jay Crowder?" Like, I got really carried away one night, and Kellen was like, "No, it's not possible." <laughs> and and so after that point, what I did, because you know, Jay's a longtime veteran. He's been in the, he's been around for a long time. But I've never really, he's one of those players who just blends into the background. You don't really watch him closely until he's on your team, and you have reason to. And so over the past couple of weeks, I've made it more of a personal mission to just watch Jay Crowder's off-ball defense. Really watch. With he's doing and the approach that he takes with his stunts with his digs uh with his ability to break up plays uh you know kind of in the nail area on defense i mean he makes the sun's pick and roll defensive scheme work his on ball defense may not actually be that impressive because he may not have like the burst or athleticism to to just stick with anyone even if he is very strong um at least if we're talking about his perimeter play but man, his team defense is really just so much better than I think I initially gave him credit for. So I did want to give that a, a quick shout out. And, you know, I think he's more than earned his value um, with what he's doing on that end. Just with what uh, they did yesterday, the, the switching, and I think Mike did allude to this earlier, but the switching that the Suns did the past couple games against Denver, whether you think they should have done that in the first place or not, I think it mostly worked. And I think you can't even begin to deploy that kind of thing if you don't have Jay Crowder in there with his... With his yeah. uh, his team defense and what he right. was doing to make sure that he could do whatever he could to deny Jokic the ball after Aiton switched onto Murray or whoever was on the perimeter. And it didn't work every time, but when it did, it was very clear that it was Jay who was making it happen. Yeah. Uh, I Actually, from this perspective, Dan, I'd like to ask you, how close do you think Cameron Johnson would be to breaking that top 100 at this point? Because, you know, taking Jay's spot in that starting lineup and, and as good as he's been, I think that actually, to be honest, I think his shooting has been a little worse than I expected as far as Cameron Johnson, but I think he's shown a lot more as far as dribbling, and I think his defense has been much better 
than anyone really thought it would be coming into the league. That was one of those draft picks that was heavily criticized. And if he's not close, it's fine uh, at this point. But what do you think, Dan? Yeah, I think you had mentioned something to me about Cam Johnson's defense when we were talking like a a week or two ago at this point. And so I watched some of that, and it feels like – he one is he's not someone who's going to be super strong but he just moves better than i think people have given him credit for and he has like for someone who doesn't foul a lot like he makes like actual plays more often if you're watching closely than you would think with someone who you know that low foul rate like he gets more blocks and steals than you would think but it's more than that where it feels like he's aggressive or he's able to like stay in front of people you wouldn't peg for him to stay in front um i do agree with i think it was sam that was talking about or maybe even before when we were talking about you don't want him matching up with Anthony Davis, like there's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that is the typical Jay Crowder role. And that's where probably where people diverge from him is that it's the same thing with Robert Covington. When you hear three and D, I don't think people really take into account team defense that much, or even the ability to defend like bigger guys better than like, let's call them pure wings or something. Um, And that's sort of like where Jay Crowder is at, where you, not that you would prefer to have him on an Anthony Davis as opposed to like a, like a Paul George, but he's just better defending those type of guys because he is so strong. And like you said, he's not super quick, but I will say that Cam Johnson is just as someone who dumped all over the pick too. When, um, when it was made in 2019, he's uh, watching him a little bit more closely on that end. He's been a lot better than I ever could anticipate it. And I even had a note in here. You had mentioned that he's just been better dribbling, like just 10 of 15 on drives this year when he's shooting and nine of 15 on off the dribble jump shots, really? nine of 18, excuse me, on off the dribble jump shots. And so that's something that, that takes you aback is that he has, if you want to call them counters, whatever, it's mm-hmm. not just, he's going to be this spot up guy where like Jake Crowder probably needs to be that guy. And by saying he needs to be that guy, like stop drifting in all these weird places, be an actual <laughs> spot up guy. <laughs> yeah. And don't, uh, if he does attack, Jake Crowder has actually made some nice passes. Something I didn't really know about Jay before he was on the Suns is his capability of passing has impressed me. Uh, and early in the season, he was the best at finding Aiton. One of the concerns I had with him le- leaving the starting lineup, but Aiton's aggression has sort of changed all of that, made it work a little bit better. All right, the next guy, Mikael Bridges. Mikael Bridges, who arguably had his worst game of the season in this second Nuggets game. Uh, he was it was foul trouble really that did it all, which limited his minutes and caused him to have, struggle. Didn't score until the fourth quarter. Ended the game with maybe seven points. He had eleven. Um, he exploded low key in, in that fourth quarter, in yeah, like the he, last couple minutes. Yeah, but. he did well. Seven straight points, I think, uh, from Mikhail in the fourth fourth quarter after scoring zero in the first three quarters. Uh, Eighty five. You had him on the list. This has got to be a stock up, right? Yeah, this is this is clearly a stock up, and it. Uh, oh, but I want to give you credit, Dan. Actually, because I I almost forgot. I pulled out here. So yes, you had him eighty five. Yes, you have to atone for your sin. But um, <laughs> you said, literally, you said here, quote, he. Um, you were talking about how Mikael Bridges played well in the bubble. You said he broke out the occasional pull up triple, improved his decision making when dribbling into traffic kept the ball moving and contributed to finding cracks in the defense away from the ball. It was a breakthrough stretch, and it lasted long enough to portend a breakthrough year. So, take a bow, Dan Favalli. I would say that actually <laughs> that actually, you kind of called it. Uh, I will never take victory laps because of how often I'm wrong, but that that <laughs> writing aged so much better than most of the other stuff that I put out there. So that's And look, that was done by a... Um, I did all the writing, but the rankings ended up being like a panel and so I was probably a little bit higher on Mikhail than 85, but he wasn't like getting higher than 75, even if I was doing it alone. And I think you can put him in uh, fairly higher than that at this point. And what I've been like sort of, in, or not sort of, definitely been impressed by is that they have, you know, last season it looked like he would have the ability to really branch out on offense if they needed him to. 
you don't really have that option right now because of the Chris Paul stuff. Like more of his shots this year um, are coming off the catch, 55.4% compared to 41.2. The thing that's still staggering to me is that both the volume or the frequency with which him and Devin Booker are being used like in cut situations is is down from last year, which I think that's probably a symptom of how Chris Paul prefers to play. But Mm -hmm. he's still, like he's someone 50% on drives this year. He could still put the ball on the floor. Um, He's still, I think, an underrated passer when he's he's moving. And I think he does have the ability to offer more if you want him to hit – maybe some off-the-dribble jumpers. I don't know if that will ever be his role, at least so long as, you know, Chris Paul is next to Devin Booker. But he's, you know, if there was any doubt that he is, you know, everything he does is just scalable and talking about his defense as well, which, you know, everyone, the thing has been like, well, he's not like the best one-on-one defender. And I I wrote something else or I tweeted something else at the beginning of the year where it's like, I don't think he gets enough credit for doing that because he's clearly not the strongest, but he just knows how to use length and, and positioning. And so he is just one of my favorite players to watch on that at number one, and I I don't know how high I can uh, stop being on Mikael Bridges. Like, I don't know what the limit would be to how high I'm or how much <laughs> Mikael Bridges stock I would buy at right. this point. <laughs> what do you think uh, What do you think his ceiling is as a player? Uh, we've This is a common conversation on this podcast, as you can imagine, as people who only talk about the Suns really uh, – <laughs> But Mikhail Bridges, it's sort of it's an interesting thing. You talked about how many of his shots are coming off the catch. Like a lot of the ceiling of a player like Mikhail Bridges, his defense will get better as he gets stronger, which is an amazing thing to even say because of how good it's been. But there's even the sort of can he create shots for himself? Like what is the heights that his offense can reach is sort of to me what will dictate his ceiling. He's already at the point where I think he's earning He's going to be getting a pretty massive extension at the end of the season. Uh, and if he doesn't, uh, we can all break out our pitchforks for Robert Sarver at, oh, <laughs> at that point uh, specifically. But from your perspective, just watching him, you, you cover the rest of the league. You've seen how players develop. He, he was drafted older, right? He's an older mm. guy already in his rookie deal, but he's actually older than a lot of those guys. That, that factors in a little bit here. What do you think his ceiling is as a player? That's interesting. Um, I th- the one thing I'll say is that w- when you have someone who's been in, it feels like, a very specific role offensively for most of his career, it could be tough to extrapolate what he would look like if he was given more freedom. But And there's nothing that would prove this. But he seems to be like moving even quicker when he's driving the ball this year. I don't know if it's because he's so excited because he's actually driving and doesn't have to be a catch-and-shoot <laughs> or whatever. I could see him. No, I don't think he's ever going to be the engine of an offense or like this top-tier playmaker, but could we put him into, if you're going to expand his offensive role, and I think that would be key if you want to really substantially up his ranking, like is, you know, top like 40 or 35 in the league, like that type of player where it's maybe he'll make some all-star appearances or as a fringe all-star every year. That feels like a good ceiling for him. And maybe he even reaches that now in his current role. And you mentioned his extension. I know he's older, but he had to be seeing OG Ananobi get 472 and be like, well, I'm worth more than that. Yeah. It's hard to argue that he's not worth more than that at this point sam what do you what have you thought about mikhail bridges so far uh, i mean what, what do you expect me to say he's been he's been amazing um dan did make me look up the cutting stats i still think that's interesting and i think it's interesting you took note of it um dan he's got eight cutting possessions through 15 games this year last year he had 90 in 73 games so that's a lot of numbers at once but basically he he um has cut his cutting frequency in half 
this season. And that's been really interesting because traditionally, even in his rookie season, Mikhail Bridges has been one of the best cutters in the NBA. So I would like to see um, him do a little bit more of it. But I guess there hasn't necessarily been that necessity with him shooting like 45, 47% from deep. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. It's just he's good in transition. He's good at cutting. He's he's a confident shooter now. He shoots with no hesitation. It really does make kind of that pick and roll creation the final frontier for Mikhail Bridges. And so to that end, maybe it is time where, I, you know, I don't know if it would be the best thing for the Suns offense on any given night, but I don't know, maybe you stagger the lineups a little bit weird and see if you can experiment with a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there, Mikhail Bridges, throw him into a few pick and rolls and just see what happens. Because if he figures that out, then that does unlock the higher ceiling of being a top 30, top 40 player. Um, yeah. But but he but he does have to figure that out eventually. If he can't figure that out, then he's just going to be like a superstar role player who's really really good at everything he does off the ball, but never quite an on ball force. That he is the one where I ranked him as the most underappreciated or underrated player in the NBA last year. I think that's the last negative interaction I had with Sun fans is that they were claiming he actually wasn't underrated and i think um the exercise is like i meant more so by the national media yeah i think fans typically appreciate their own players just fine (laughs) yeah Uh, but he's what kind of sucks though is that if he doesn't get the opportunity to branch out he still will always be talked about in the terms of like a role player or a superstar role player and i think that he regardless of like what happens with his role in phoenix like who he is now to me is just better than that and I still I just don't think he gets enough credit and like look again they've made some changes to just like you mentioned like the cutting numbers um and just like if you're him and you saw what you were doing towards the end of last year you probably expected to have a bigger role and yet now you've had to scale into this different sort of fit with um Chris Paul being there as well and he's just he's doing so well within it and I don't know you know it's probably too bold to say he's been their best player but has there been uh like a, a player who's just more consistent than him for the Suns this no. year? And I'm no, generally think, asking you guys that. I'm no, trying to no. think of one, and I can't. The no. advanced analytics literally do say he's the best player. Now, I will say if DeAndre Ayton can play with any level of consistency as he's shown the last four games, then he shows how how he is the most valuable player to the Suns yeah. team by far. But he, And he'll be an interesting conversation next, too. And but of he course, has, Devin Booker as he plays better. Yeah, of course. Be but, yeah, but no one's been consistent except for Mikhail Bridges. So I, I, I do think the answer is Mikhail Bridges. Yeah, it's funny to say that after his game. Uh, against Denver, but uh, it's tough. So trade it's, everyone and rebuild around Mikel Bridges. We're all in agreement. <laughs> well, he can never leave the team. That's that's basically how I feel at this point. Regardless of what ends up being the team in five years, as long as Mikhail's on it, I think I'll be okay. Uh, I'll, he's a winner. I mean, two national championships in college. He's just a guy that just kind of fits in whatever you need him to do. I do wonder if those cutting numbers will go up because the type of gravity that Cameron Johnson has is different than Jay Crowder. Even if Jay Crowder will shoot it as if he's Cameron Johnson, uh, Cameron Johnson is known as that guy in defenses react differently based on that. So that's actually something that I'm glad you brought it up. That's something that I'm going to take note of going forward and see if those cutting numbers change now that the starting lineup is a little different. What would you guys? Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. What would you guys pay him if he finishes the season exactly as he is right now? What would you give him in an extension? I think he's in the twenty million dollar range at this All point. Of my, twenty million dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to savings, argue he's not right. My four hundred one k. He can have everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the thing with the type of player that he is, because the league in general is just so hard up for wings, and that's who everyone lusts after too. If they let him get to restricted free agency, yeah, like he might someone's going to come over the top with yeah. like, I, if I, maybe it won't be max money, but it'll be near max money. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I think that that extension conversation is going to be very, very, very important, and it's a tough. Uh, it's a tough thing for the Suns because 
DeAndre and, and Mikhail Bridges are going to hit that extension eligibility at the exact same time. And uh, that's that's tough because that's two guys that can make a lot of money. The extensions wouldn't kick in until after Chris Paul's gone, so that cap space will be available in order and immediately. Someone needs to explain that to reasons. Robert Sarver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he probably does need somebody to explain that to him. But I think it's, uh, you know, I, I actually, at the beginning of the season with how DeAndre Ayton was playing, part of me was wondering if they were going to allow him to get to restricted free agency at some point just to see what was out there for him. But if he continues to play like he has been for the last stretch, then you can't let a guy like that get to restricted free agency. You got to you gotta get him. And that's good because if, if he continues playing, it's totally worthwhile. But that's just going to be a lot of cap space eaten up. Your core will be Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, and DeAndre and going forward for a while. Not that that's a bad thing, but you're locked in at that point. And it's going to be really interesting. Speaking of DeAndre Ayton, you had this will be interesting, I think. You had him at 37, which I think was pretty high for DeAndre Ayton in a good way. And your high, you know, Bleacher Report in general, since it was a ranking, which I wasn't even sure about. I'm glad you brought that up. Was pretty high on him, and I think that's a pretty high number. I arguably struggled offensively at the very least at the beginning of the season. I think his defense has been pretty steady. Even that has gotten better as the season has rolled along. What do you? How do you feel about DeAndre Ayton so far? There's, I think, the inclination would be to. Um to be like stocked down and there was a point and I, I blamed the two of you for this a little bit too after the podcast that we recorded just before <laughs> the season you like made me a little bit disenchanted with um, DeAndre Ayton long term I'm like stock neutral on him if not how could we after, ever do maybe that maybe I'm sipping the juice of the past few games too much might even be a little bit stock up because it feels like and I had actually talked with this about Sam a couple of days ago um, what he does on defense right now, like even though when you look at the on-off splits, they're just absolutely wild, that's harder to replace than what they need him to do on offense. And maybe that sort yeah. of explains why he struggled on offense so much to start is that he's trying to find that right balance. Um, I saw someone talking about like, well, he's just not used to uh, not having his post-ups. And like his post-ups are virtually the same, at least per second spectrum compared to, to last year. He just seemed like a, I don't even know what the word is. Was it just a less confident player where it was, yes. he didn't even want, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's your mentality. You're exactly right. Feel free to continue, though. Yeah, and there was like I was watching even in the there was a couple time in the first uh, or the second Nuggets game where it's like he's just you couldn't even say he's slipping screens with Chris Paul. It's like he's not even setting real screens, and it feels like he wants to be closer to the basket so he doesn't have to put the ball on the floor before he gets there if Chris Paul's going to pass it to him. And some of the stuff that he's done, I'm at least looking at last season, like he can. Like I don't want to see the fadeaways outside the paint. Um, I definitely want to see like more of the him shooting the threes. He hit the three to open the game against Denver on Saturday, and I was like, you know, my heart went boom when that happened. <laughs> but um, like he's the type of guy that can put like he doesn't need to be methodical. Like he can do those quick one dribble, two dribble on the rolls and just really put pressure on the rim that way. And they do need him to because at least entering this podcast, um, the percent of field goal attempts for them that are coming at the rim rank dead last in the league. And when you look at the players they have. Um, I honestly don't know who would be the answer aside from DeAndre Ayton that you could count on to put a consistent pressure on the rim. Is it is it Cameron Payne? Because like, that's almost a little right. bit troubling. It's a that. combination so, of Booker, yeah, Payne, I'm and just, Booker. I, yeah. What I've seen the past few games, if it's steady, I would go stock up. I thought we were going to fall into a Marvin Bagley situation where wow. I had him, um, I guess, 2019 at this point. It was coming off his rookie year. I had him at like 70-something in Bleach Report rankings, and now I don't even know if he would make the G League rankings. So, uh, and look, he's been better. So that's like, he's been better on offense the past yeah. few games. That's not fair. But I thought I was falling into like a similar fall that, oh yeah, DeAndre is still going to be good, but does he not have that fringe star aspect that we were projecting for this season? 
and I think it's there. And if he if he figures something out on offense, that ends up being huge because I'm and you guys have covered this. Um, you were among the people that turned me on to it last season. Watching him play defense is just incredible, and there's just there are yeah. very few bigs that can switch as well as he can right yeah. now, and you can't find someone to replace like sort of the east westness of what mm-hmm. he does. I would put it. Yeah. So if he's figuring out on offense, um, he becomes borderline indispensable to this team at that point. So I'm going to be again. I might just be sipping the Kool Aid over these past few games. I'm going stock up on DeAndre Ayton. I love I love to see it. I mean, yeah, the the hip mobility is. The big thing with me, like you were talking about with the East West. You put that so much better than I did. I'm like, no, no, no. East West (laughs) is. It's exactly, it's exit, but it's exactly the same thing. It's the anti Obi Toppin ness um, of what (laughs) what he did. Um, Dan's in New York, for those who don't know. I don't know if you saw the uh, the Rockets game. That one was also was that on national TV for some reason this past week. I think it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the one where um, whoever it was called in on his on his phone. Anyway, it, it doesn't matter. Um, the, <laughs> I can safely got, say that I watched zero seconds of that game. That is, so. Dan, it's fair. that's that's <laughs> totally fine. But that was right after the trade. So, in case yeah. you were curious, if if uh, DeAndre Ayton and Mikael Bridges could collectively lock down Victor Oladipo and Christian Wood, the answer in that game was yes. And Ayton had a career high five blocks and. I think all five blocks, maybe one was on Boogie, but I think he got like four on Oladipo and it was the same thing every time. Granted, Depot isn't, you know, he's not what he once was, but coming downhill, Aiden flipping his hips from east to west and, and sort of collecting the block. He's just really, he's really, really good at it. And uh, I, I think what's confused me though over the past week, if there's, if there's been anything is it's just, we know this is a mental thing. We've always known it was a mental thing. So how did he flip the switch? Like, it's always been a confidence thing. And then suddenly, we've all along, all we've asked for from DeAndre, back when we were criticizing him just a couple weeks ago, we asked him to put the uh, the ball on the floor and dribble, to take those threes with, without hesitation. He doesn't have to take a lot of them, but just maybe one or two a game. Um, and to dunk the ball and, and look for legitimate opportunities to jump into the air and, and catch lobs. And he's done all of those things phenomenally in the past week. And I can't complain because there have, there have been literally no negative attributes to his recent performance. It's just part of me is also confused. Like, it, it, he did it. You know, every everything we've wanted from him, he was instantly just able to flip a switch and start doing it. And so I don't know why it's so come and go, but but I guess we'll see in, in you know, the coming weeks if it stays. I Hey, I'm, I'm just going to believe it. I think... I, I've started thinking about it too much after I'm not even criticizing you guys for it. you made points that we were talking but I started thinking about his value too much to this team at the beginning of the season and of course the slower start doesn't uh, help but the past few games it seems just perfect and there's even uh, I think it was the the Saturday night no, the two Nuggets games have blurred together um, for me but yeah. like just the fact that, that I think players around the NBA sort of understand what he's able to do defensively because um, he and Mikhail Bridges like f- switched um, Jokic and Murray and Murray ended up in the corner and like that would have been a situation where he normally would have tried to have gone like baseline or something but he, he saw yeah. it was DeAndre Ayton and so he just took this like fade away long two and that's like an actual impact that DeAndre Ayton is having that I don't know that would ever technically that be measured and then the the phoenix can so liberally just do that i would be interested i don't have access to this data i would love to know and i'm just going to use this phrasing so i'm assuming it's bad how poorly opposing teams are shooting when it's like a mikhail bridges deandre ayton defended pick and roll um well i think a couple things actually i think uh nikaias duncan covered that a couple weeks ago he said it was like 0.7 
points per possession, but that was a couple weeks ago, so I'm not sure what it is so now. So there's probably like 0. 0.5 now is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. I'm going to assume but yes. The other thing you're talking about there is rim deterrence. It's an actual stat. Our buddy um, uh, Tim Cranjus McBasketball, uh, B-Ball Index, uh, we've had him a on the podcast before. Uh, another Blue Wire podcast. He's He's been on our podcast before, and uh, this was a while ago, granted, but one of the stats that they track is this thing called rim deterrence because I think it is an interesting phenomenon last year. What was happening with DeAndre Ayton is we saw that he was a better rim protector, he was much improved, and he was swatting more shots at the rim and, and holding opponents to a lower percentage, but it hadn't actually translated on the scouting report yet. And so guys were still attacking him because they believed he couldn't do yes. it and they wanted him to prove that it was real. And I don't have the stat in front of me, I'd have to look it up, but rim deterrence is an actual, it's an, a quantitative measurement that they track over at B-Ball Index. And I think you could argue based on the eye test that we are seeing that out of DeAndre Ayton. It's a legitimate skill. The best rim protectors in the NBA, uh, sometimes they, they start averaging fewer blocks because they're yeah. challenged so much less often because that's how intimidating they are. And so if we can get to that point with DeAndre Ayton, it's really just solidifies the proof that guys are actually afraid of him now, which would be a big step. Yes, That was one of my arguments, sorry, for Joel Embiid as Defensive Player of the Year, is that there are, it's not even that teams don't want to attack the rim. Like, they're just, if, if they're a team or players that like to go after floaters, um, because it seems like he's coming out a little bit further in, in pick and rolls and just in general, they just don't even want to try them anymore. And so yeah. if Aiton gets to, yeah, that's probably an unfair comparison, but if that's the type of impact he has on the you know the offense's thinking like that's that right now in the NBA is harder to replace than, than what he's doing on offense as good as he's been over the past few games I don't think that's an unfair com- at some point that has to not be an unfair comparison I guess defensively is is the point I want to make because it mo- his mobility arguably is even slightly better than Joel Embiid's at certain points so uh, Joel Embiid, ha- I think, has like a, a little bit more of a physical advantage just because he's a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger, arguably. But beyond that, I think the mobility is there. And I think what you guys just described here is exactly my problem with a lot of the defensive stats. You have to watch the game in order to recognize when people are just deterred. And I love that uh, that Cranjus Tim is is developing a stat for that specifically I was pretty excited to come on this specific podcast and talk about DeAndre Ayton because it it's just a nice time to come on and talk about him after the games that we've seen. Offensively, the things that he has done has made the starting lineup look good. The starting lineup was bad. Arguably four games in a row where he was the best player on the team, which I don't know that there was ever a stretch like that in his first two years. Young as he was, uh, a lot of it had to do with his mentality and consistency and that's still what it is with DeAndre, and he still has to keep this mentality throughout a 72-game season. He has to be as consistent as possible in order to be good. And, you know, I, something you brought up, Dan, that I thought was interesting is the screens. Sometimes he's not even setting screens. Sometimes he's slipping a little too early. That's, I think, one of the things that you can point at to, to be... It's sort of indicative of his fear of contact. A lot of, I think, his struggles early on has been a fear of contact defensively or offensively. And that's something that he has to fix in order to be as great as possible going forward. So far, so good in the last few games. And I think I would fall on the side of stuck up as well. It's yes. it's a it's a weird thing, too, <laughs> where uh, it's just, like Sam said, it's like something just changed. <laughs> it it's really feels like all of a sudden there was a different person on the floor for the last four games. And... It's tough because all Suns fans can say, the people who are trying to have like a legitimate good faith conversation 
about DeAndre Ayton, all we can really say is, I hope this remains. I hope this continues. I hope he continues to do that. And that's where I'm at because it's been really, really good. And I think as discouraging as the last few games have been, four out of the last, you know, or I should say five out of the last seven losses, so much of how well he's played and how that has sort of unlocked who Chris Paul is. And there was a stretch where Devin Booker looked like Devin Booker again. If that can sustain, if that can continue, as everyone gets healthy, I think the team can continue to get much, much better. So as much as those losses should have been discouraging, I come, I came out of a, a lot of that just feeling pretty damn encouraged about what I've seen because I think they can get so much better. Uh, let's yeah, I would see. totally... Nick, the, the other thing with him too, and uh, Eddie Johnson made me think of this, and I don't totally agree, but he had mentioned something about DeAndre Ayton um, because they're rebounding with him on the floor. It's just all over the place uh, defensively. And he had yeah. mentioned something about... Um, how they could even get some more second-chance opportunities if he was smarter about the way he got back on defense, where he thinks that DeAndre Ayton is so concerned about getting back on defense that he's just not in position to grab what would be offensive rebounds. Right. And I'm almost wondering, because like transition defense has been basically up and down for this team all year. Trying to keep an eye on that after um, Johnson had mentioned something, I, going back and watching some of this stuff, it feels like... I don't know if he's so like committed to getting back on defense that his first instinct isn't to go for an offensive rebound where there's a lot of like starting to get back but then coming back and like does that then compromise the transition defense at all because now he's yeah. been so indecisive that he's changed his mind twice it feels like. Right. Yeah, that's it's a really interesting point. Um I actually just happened to look at that stat today. Um and it, it kind of uh intuitively makes sense. The Suns are second in transition defense, according to Synergy um, this year, which surprised me. I didn't think they were that good. Um, but I do believe it's a collective point that Monty Williams has been stressing, and it correlates perfectly to DeAndre Ayton is having his worst, not by too much, he, he's still good, but he is having his worst offensive rebounding season uh, uh, so far. So I think what you're saying there would make sense. I, I also think there's a, a element of DeAndre Ayton where his help defense, a lot of times, this is a defensive rebounding, uh, will also lead to not great box outs sometimes. And I think there's a balance of trying to help and trying to get a body on someone, whereas he's commonly looking up at the rim. His box outs could get a little bit better. And and those are, I think, the, the small details in the game, the small little decisions that slow him down. A lot of the offensive struggles, it looked like he was trying to make multiple decisions at once. So, Dan, I like that you use that phrase to talk about the offensive rebounding as well. So there's a, like a lot of it is just finding ways to be more decisive in those small decisions. And that comes with playing more games in the NBA, even in his second year, missing the games that he did with the suspension and, and ankle roll at some point in the season. He still has a lot to learn. I think those small decisions getting better over time can have a large difference for him as a player. Whereas for other guys, it may not have as big of a difference. I think for centers, those little decisions may make a big difference because of they're protecting the rim. They're the last line of defense. I'm impressed that they are apparently second in transition defense. Um, I feel like the last time I looked, I was like, oh, they're a lot worse than I thought. But um, early season swings, I guess. I must have looked at it at the wrong time. Well, and, and we're still early season, so it could still swing. Um, but, but yeah, the only other thing I'll say there, I guess, before we move on to the next player, their half-court defense is suffering. <laughs> they're not, you know, they're not that top 10 defensive rating type team anymore after taking all these L's. Yeah. And they've struggled there. And I think the next guy we're going to talk about is Chris Paul, who's at number 22. And I think so much of pace is like Chris Paul has grinded the Suns down to a really slow pace. And 
that affects other teams as well. I think in their transition offense, there's just an element of just sort of playing at similar paces. And it's just like this Jedi mind trick that happens. So much of what Chris Paul, I think, does now in the NBA and what he did with OKC is based on like the, the teams that he was trying to beat in the playoffs. He's always been a relatively slow-paced guy, but you know, with the Rockets, their focus was entirely on finding a way to beat the Warriors, and that's slowing the pace down and doing this grinded-out thing and lots of isolations because they're trying to avoid help defense and those kinds of things. And then we, even with OKC, when they took Houston to seven games, I think a lot of that had to do with grinding it down to a really slow pace again and trying to beat them in the 90s. And I feel like that mentality has sort of stuck with him and what he's doing on the Suns. Now, I would say Chris Paul has struggled a little bit to start this season. He's not hitting the shots that he normally makes. His assists are up, which is something we expected. We talked about it before the season. Uh, you know, I still think he's had overall a, a, a pretty damn positive effect on the Suns. Obviously, a better record than they had at this point last season. Uh, but what do you think, Dan? How, how have you viewed Chris Paul on the Suns so far? So I think he has been good for this team and will continue to be good, if not better for them. I'm stocked down on him overall because it does feel like there's been a physical drop off for him. And I know, I know he's older, but just between last season and now, um, he really does seem like he's taking 62% of his shots from mid range, which would be a career high per cleaning the glass. And that's fine when he's shooting 50%. Um, but he's at 30% from above the break threes. He doesn't, uh, you know, those semi-transition pull-ups that he's been so good at um, from Houston and, and OKC, where it's like they're not really in transition, but they kind of are because the defense isn't set. Uh, he's just not – it doesn't even seem like he's looking for those, let alone um, really hitting for them, uh, hitting them. And that sort of just discourages me, and I'm just wondering if they have – I don't want to use the word cow-toed because that has such a negative connotation to it, but are they sort of like investing too much in Chris Paul when Devin Booker is on the court? And mm. that's something that – I think needs to be probably more balanced, if not skew more toward Booker moving forward, because you know Chris Paul is not shooting well off the catch right now, but he will shoot better off the catch. Um, he just doesn't; those aren't shots that he ever has taken. Right. And I think now <laughs> at this stage of his career, given how good Devin Booker is, and just given how drastically when you look at Devin Booker's shot profile with and without Chris Paul this season, it feels like there's more room to maneuver there. And I don't know if that's just not something that Chris Paul is willing to do if Monty Williams doesn't want to do it. Something just feels a little bit off where we're maybe getting closer to the Chris Paul offensive decline that we've been waiting for. That being said, he's still just ridiculously good. I'm viewing this through the context of I thought he was still this top 20 guy yeah, when I was 22. writing those rankings. Yeah, I mean, that's a really high ranking, and I think at this point of his career, it'd be really surprising if he went up <laughs> in his rankings rather than down. I think there is an expected decline. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, the ball handling is all still there, but has he lost a step? Uh, how how much longer can he go on continuing to miss the shots that he's consistently made for the past 10 years before we sort of do have to concede that? Um, and that's, I guess that's not even necessarily a rhetorical question. Like, actually, guys, how, how long is it? Because right now it's been 15 games. He's at a career low in three-point percentage. He's at a career low... Um, by far, actually, in free throw attempts per 36, to Dan's point, I mean, he just, he, he doesn't even, um, I think I literally jumped out of my seat the other night in, maybe it was the fourth quarter, maybe it was overtime, but it was a late game play in the first Denver game when he actually went for it, like he just exploded and actually went up for a layup, and I was like, whoa, he didn't do a little jump stop. Did Michael Green it. looked shocked. Yeah, he didn't, <laughs> yeah, you know the play I'm talking about, he was, I was like, wow, he, he didn't do the little jump stop 10 foot whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean, but so I don't know where where is that point? Is it half a season in? Well, um, is it where is it? 
here, here's what I'll say to that point. The relationship between Chris Paul and how a center plays offensively is a symbiotic relationship. They they go hand in hand. There's some synergy there that needs to happen. And I think that now that DeAndre is actually looking to score on rolls and Chris Paul has found better ways to get him the ball. I think Chris Paul is passing him the ball in these low bounce passes that DeAndre Ayton struggles to catch where he's better at catching it up high. If they find that level of synergy, that opens up the court a lot better for Chris Paul. And if those shots are still not dropping now with DeAndre Ayton playing better, I think that would increase my worries about what he's capable of doing as far as scoring the ball. Dan, I think you have a great point about Devin Booker. I think they're not. I think they've struggled to use him properly so far. And I think it's a fair thing to trust Chris Paul to try and work things out and and figure things out because of how good he's been. So I don't blame Monty Williams at this point in the season, but I think as the season progresses, I think more of the offensive responsibility should and will properly shift in Devin Booker's favor and Chris Paul will probably see his usage rate even though it's not super high uh, maybe decline a little bit going forward uh, but yeah I, I'm, I'm not super concerned about it well no I shouldn't say that I'm slightly concerned now and I think with DeAndre Ayton playing that role a little bit better I'm going to keep an eye on it a lot more <laughs> now that that's happening and see see where he's at so far yeah, he's and look. The other thing though is he's he is shooting eleven of twenty on twos in the clutch so far this yeah. season, which is just like because after watching the, the two games versus Denver or most of the two games versus Denver, it felt like he was hitting those shots again. And I like um, yeah. Sam was surprised when he actually went for the layup. Those used to not be all that memorable because they happened all the time. But yeah, there's some there very famous are. ones. <laughs> the Spurs but yeah, at some point you would think that there's just a higher variance in his shot selection right now, and you would think it's going to tilt in the wrong direction, but. He's still, I, I think overall, and like some of this stuff will take care of itself naturally. Where because Monty Williams, I feel like, has done a like a generally good job staggering the two, that it does make it a little bit easier. But you're going to want them to close games together, and they're going to want to spend more time together with the postseason. So you'd like to see them have just this better chemical balance. And I thought I thought they would be further along there at this point, to be honest. Yeah, you, you know, regarding the uh, clutch situation, Dan, I think it's just kind of interesting. Uh, Pulled up these stats the other day. I don't have them in front of me, but Chris Paul has been really good. Like you said, 11 of 20 in the clutch. Devin Booker has been really not good in the yeah, clutch so far. Yeah, 32.2 true shooting, if anyone cares. That is, Jesus, uh, that's that is really low. Bad. That's, that's yeah. like if... You know, Uncharacteristic. That's like if we waited for Jamal Crawford to turn 50 and then offered him a roster spot. Um, <laughs> yeah, Eddie, look, right down to the assist-to-turnover ratio, 0.5 assist-to-turnover ratio. <laughs> yeah, so my point being... We can have all the conversations in the world about are we improperly using Devin Booker? Are we investing too much in Chris Paul? But what we have seen, albeit in a limited sample size, is that when push comes to shove at the end of games, who's really running the offense more efficiently? (laughs) So maybe we should be investing just as many resources as we are into Chris Paul because come playoff time, he has to be the guy in the final five minutes. I don't know. Is it? Do you think that the fit is as simple as Devin Booker is not really a three? point shooter <laughs> like that's part a of, lot of the, the the space on the court that they occupy that those two guys want to get their shots off are the same like they're the, they're they're that sort of mid-range area and the occasional three-pointer maybe too occasional for chris paul so far but uh generally relatively occasional for even devin booker chris paul likes to be surrounded by guys who space the floor maybe even beyond the three-point line devin booker even though he can guys still guard him out there it's just he's not 
you know, he doesn't shoot a ton of them compared to a lot of the stars in the NBA, and he's not super great at shooting them off the dribble. You know, is it as simple as that? I, I wonder. Are you questioning if the winner of a three-point contest, the uh, the Mountain Dew <laughs> three-point contest or whatever it was, is a good shooter, Mike? Taco Bell. Taco uh, Bell. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I'm not saying he's not a good shooter, but he's just not quite a three-point shooter. You know, he's just not, he's not Clay Thompson, even yeah. to an extent. He's, he's not, not J.J. You know, Redick. J.J. Yeah. Redick or no. James Harden. James Harden is not, you know, catching it and shooting it the way that J.J. Redick is, but, you know, shot like 13 threes a game or whatever it was when they were on the same team. Uh, I just wonder if it's as simple as they're just not used to ha- playing with another star that's in the same space as, you know, Devin Booker not used to playing with another star, period. Um, <laughs> but Chris Paul maybe not used to a guy occupying that same space that Chris Paul tends to occupy, and that's just causing it to take a little longer for them to work out than a lot of us anticipated. That's kind of what I'm looking at so far. There is there Could there be an element, too, of, like, what were we in before this year? Like, there was four years of Devin Booker being all everything. Yeah. And to be displaced from the ball at all has to feel awkward. Even, I don't remember which game it was I was watching this season. I think it was another crunch time game, though, that they lost, where it seemed like he was looked like he was going to go get the ball from Chris Paul, who was above the break, just because he was stationed, like, Devin Booker was not as far left as he should have been for someone who didn't have the ball in that situation. And then that whole possession just looked so clunky, and maybe that's... You know, maybe that's just a natural learning period because every team is dealing with the abridged training camp and then just the availability even when they're not playing games. Like I don't even know what the Suns practice schedule looks well, like. So I, mean, I would to expect that point, it to get better, hopefully this, as the year goes on. The Suns just recently came off a, a week of no practice together. You know, so even when even when they had those games postponed, it's not like they were able to to work on anything that would yeah. be pertinent to better chemistry between those two. So I think that's one on one workouts point. only. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. It's it just takes time. I think any any time two uh, sort of stars are are meeting, they have to figure out how to orbit around each other a little bit better. So, and that's that leads nicely into the Devin Booker conversation. First of all, Devin Booker at fifteen is very high, and I think excited a lot of Suns fans before this season. I just want to ask you, Dan, from from the perspective of someone who knows the people that sort of made this ranking. How much of that do you think had to do with the bubble, him being ranked so highly in those Bleacher Report rankings and how well the Suns played in the bubble? Uh, I think it had a lot to do with it. I was still actually surprised with, you know, giving people like time to give final assessments after I finalized the rankings. And I did give myself carte blanche to make tougher calls that I thought were either egregious or if they were too close and the tiebreaker was weird. Um, there was some pushback for Devin Booker at 15. So maybe they weren't reading into the bubble performance enough at that point. But there was, he was, I didn't think he was going to end up with, I think before the tie break, he would have finished like no lower than 23 or something like that when we went into that. And I wasn't, I thought it was going to be like 25 to 32 type of range. And so there's definitely, I think people saw the bubble and were like, oh, holy crap. And that, that definitely had to factor into it. I think it's hard to argue that he's played at a 15th best player in the league level <laughs> it's, it's so impossible. far this season. So impossible I, I, to know, argue. It's, I would say stock down is an easy choice here, but there's obviously a lot of encouraging statistics there. But what do you think? So I didn't think this would be like, um, maybe it is, I didn't think it would be spicy at all. I thought it was a cop out. I'm stock neutral on him just because it's so early that yeah. um, the fact that the lineups without Chris Paul when he's playing are just absolutely demolishing opponents right. right now and that it seems like his turnovers are a little bit more under control in those situations the biggest actual concern i have about him this year um has been the turnovers like i feel like a lot of the the spacing stuff the shooting numbers like those are gonna 
those are going to normalize at some point, and or at least in my opinion that I think that's going to happen. He has to get used to, when I was looking it up, like he goes from 53% of his shots being unassisted when he plays without Chris Paul um, to, or with Chris Paul, 52.9% of his shots are assisted to 35.6% are assisted without him. And so there's an adjustment period there. I know he's not a pull-up shooter, but like his numbers there um, from beyond the arc, like that's going to come up. It's not going to be sub 28% forever. The, the turnover stuff has just mystified me to go from someone who has been so good in the pick and roll, I feel like the past couple seasons, um, he's turning the ball over per second spectrum on 23.7% of, of his pick and roll ball handler possessions which is the fifth highest among 99 players who have run 30 total pick and rolls this year. So I'm just curious too, to what you guys would think is one, whether that is valid. And if it is like, what is actually wrong here? And there was the, I think it might've been the nuggets game where he, uh, the first one where he uh, like had this really weird turnover in crunch time. Maybe it was a different game, but just like, he just lost the ball. Like it wasn't a bad pass. Yeah. He just sort of dribbled into traffic and, and lost the ball. And so, that's the thing that just seems so bizarre to me that I don't think is necessarily or can be related to Chris Paul, although maybe maybe it can be. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, it's mystified both of us, Dan. Um, in taking a closer look at some of his assists, I, I do think he overcomplicates it for himself sometimes. Something both Mike and I have pointed out um, in the past is just how frequently now he goes for kind of the secondary option when making a passing read outside of a first one. Um, and sometimes that, you know, he'll do stuff as dumb as jumping midair and then not knowing what to do with it. You know, it's like he's become such an advanced playmaker in some ways that he's gone back to making middle school mistakes sometimes. Um, and, and, you know, so another thing that he does is he'll kind of try to create an easy look for someone in order to lull the defense or draw them in, and then he'll kick it out. And, and so that's what I'm talking about when I say going for the secondary option. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, I think that might contribute to it um, a little bit. His assists, this isn't related to his turnovers. His assists are down a little bit. Um, I think, honestly, because of Chris Paul. Uh, Ricky Rubio is a guy who, say what you will about his shooting, he wasn't a great shooter, but at least he would take spot-up threes. He would take catch-and-shoot threes, and Chris Paul just doesn't do that. So Devin Booker never assists Chris Paul, whereas actually he assisted Ricky Rubio. Sometimes it was in transition as well, so pace has played a part too. Um, they, they kind of played off each other in a symbiotic way that way. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's going to get better in time, but I think if he levels out around... I don't know, like five assists and four turnovers per game this season. Like that might be that might be the final average for Devin Booker, and I don't think that would be so bad or so crazy. And just just for some context for uh, people listening, if you split up the first fourteen games into the first seven and second seven, the first seven games of the season he's averaging five point three turnovers. The last seven games it's three turnovers a game. So. Uh, you know, Dan, you pointed it out. They seem to be getting a little under control. The last two games were a bit of a struggle, I think, turnover-wise for him. Uh, five and six in the last two games against Houston and Denver. The Houston game was an easy win. The Denver game, you know, obviously went to overtime. And there was, I think, some crunch time mistakes that he made there uh, where he struggled. I think a lot of the mistakes that he's made, I think early on it was getting used to new teammates. But I think one of the main reasons his scoring has gotten better and his turnovers have gone down is getting his legs under him. I think that there's a possibility that maybe he wasn't super in shape to start the season as much as uh, we've gotten used to him uh, coming into the season relatively in shape. And maybe that's something that uh, he wasn't well, <laughs> as it would, in shape it would. We, as we anticipated. It, you know, uh, I know that there's a bunch of Suns fans right now that are thinking about Kendall Jenner. 
As I see that. Was he at that party where they rented out, like they bought an island or something? Yeah, yeah, he was there. Uh, with you know, uh, Tristan Thompson. How, how has Tristan Thompson been, actually, now, now that you mentioned that? Uh, I haven't looked it up. But, you know, it, it would explain why, because Devin, his finishing numbers, sorry, book, his finishing numbers uh, <laughs> haven't been what they usually are either. And so some people have speculated that, you know, his lift just doesn't look like what it normally does. And, and I think maybe it all comes down to just the same general lack of conditioning. I don't know. Yeah. That or Chris Paul's already beat his ego into submission and he's tired. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Dan, um, just quickly, because I, I just looked at the list again. Um, can can you guess? Maybe you can still remember who was ranked one spot ahead of Booker. Who was ranked one spot ahead of him? There's no way you can guess. I mean, no, there's just there's, no way you remember. probably none. Is it uh, 21 seems too low for him. I got no, Was it Jalen Brown? It was not Jalen Brown. Uh, now you want me to go and find where Jalen Brown is. But it was Ben Simmons, uh, which I think is interesting. Who do we have more reason to worry about right now between Devin Booker or Ben Simmons uh. based on their early season starts? Oh, I mean, it's Ben Simmons because the stuff that like he needs to improve upon is stuff he's never been good at. Whereas with Devin Booker, it's right. like a, I think a lot of this stuff is just going to come naturally. Like, yeah, the context of his role has changed during the Chris Paul minutes, but he is, I mean, he is capable of being that player. And I think if he gets more yeah. comfortable, he'll shoot higher off the catch and maybe more often. Um, like I think both of you said, maybe they'll get him moving off the ball a little bit more. We'll have to yeah. see. But like Ben Simmons, it's just for, he seems less aggressive on offense than ever, which is, you know, he has never been particularly aggressive. He's, you can always get going downhill, but he's, going to be that pass first guy and so yeah i think you look at him and you would have to just be more concerned about him because i think for his season that yeah there's a point where he could be a better finisher this year and like things will look better there but he's always just going to be stuck in that vacuum of well the things that he's not doing right now are things that he's never done yeah that's my theory on ben simmons is as simple as he has been in trade talks the entire season and it's distracting him uh even before the season people were saying is he going to be traded is he going to be traded for james harden and then supposedly they got so close or, or Philadelphia thought they were so close to him being traded that his agent literally told him he'd be in Houston. And yeah, I think that that is a bit, a bit distracting. And That's a great point. And I don't think it's one that even people like myself who put so much stock in like the results of the numbers might not consider. And he's been basically since Daryl Morey was there just stuck. And even like just the noise of people saying that the, the Sixers should trade him before Daryl yeah. Morey was there. That had a, that had to really get to him. And I think we saw a little bit with that, with D'Angelo Russell where the Timberwolves are awful this year, but he's better than he was for the Warriors. And it's like, okay, but the talk with him was as soon as they signed him, they did it so they could trade him. Right. It's like maybe there was something to that. So that's exactly. actually a really good point. Yeah, it's, it's just a theory I have. And I, I like to keep an eye on stars that are going to be available because it's, it's just interesting. And maybe that's a, it gets to a point where he wants to leave. It wouldn't surprise me if that would were to happen. That re- Relationships can go sour pretty fast with massive NBA stars that have clutch as their... Uh, agency, <laughs> especially so. if they were told they were getting traded to Houston. That's pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, how do you let it get to that point and just find out that somehow you were outsmarted by Tillman Fertitta of all people? Uh, <laughs> that's yeah, a that's tough. Uh, that's rough if you were really burned by Tillman Fertitta. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, I think there's so much of how good the Suns can be is now predicated on how much Devin Booker can get to back to playing like he did last year. And I think that's to your point, Dan, for Ben Simmons, he's got to learn things he's never been good at for Devin Booker. He just has to play like he was six months ago. And that's a good sign for how good this team can be. Uh, I, I trust Monty Williams at this point to have them figure it out. I trust Devin Booker and Chris Paul because they're both professionals who wanted to play together. Uh, to figure it out as well and I think he's going to get better and we saw signs of that before the hamstring injury we should say we haven't talked about it he didn't play 
he he came out of that Denver game, that first game, and I think the Suns had a good chance of winning if he played the last few minutes of that first Denver overtime game and then didn't play in the second double overtime game uh, because of a hamstring strain. Hamstring injuries are uh, difficult to predict. Uh, he could be out for a game or two. He could be out for a few weeks. It's it, We don't really know exactly what the extent of that injury is going to be. So I hope he's, I hope he's back soon. They have a few days off before their game on Wednesday, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what he looks like after that because I do think he was just starting to get his legs under him a little bit in the last few games. Um, Sam, do you have any other, any other thoughts on Devin Booker before we wrap this one up? Uh, no, I guess just that it's going to be interesting if he does miss extended time uh, in addition to Dario, who steps up with the uh, the free throw load is going to be fun. We might see some tragically low free throw numbers for the, right. for the Suns over the next few games if he can't get back. 40 minutes a game from campaign in that situation is the solution. Yep. Yeah, and campaign couldn't even stay in the game due to a cramping up because <laughs> he's not used to getting that level of minutes in that Denver game alone. So it'll be interesting to see how well he can hold up there. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for being someone in national media that pays this close attention to the Phoenix Suns. Follow Dan Favalli on Twitter. Just It's just his name. Listen to Hardwood Knox, a fantastic NBA podcast that covers the entire NBA. Read his stuff on Bleacher Report and check out NBA Math. Dan, is there anything else that you'd like to plug before we end this one? No, I got nothing. You covered it all. Thank you guys so much for having me. We appreciate it, Dan. Nicola, uh, you faced Aiden in one of his first games last year, and uh, you beat him up pretty bad after the game. He was pretty shocked by how much uh, how much trouble he had with you. Uh, he seemed like he played well in these two games, but knew that you wound up getting the better of him. I just was curious if you had any thoughts on what you've seen from Aiden as he's developed he's, as a player. He's amazing. Give the guy credit. He, he's amazing. He's really solid. He's um, he knows he knows what he knows, and he knows like what he needs to work. I think that's the best thing that kind of young player can 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 uh, can uh, have that mindset. Um, he he played really good defense. He stopped me uh, five, six, seven, eight times. Um, give that guy credit. He was a, he was a, he was a really good tonight. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.